So, Lord, we're thankful for this time of sharing and telling the fellowship what has gone on in these different parts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to introduce you to our youth pastor, Matt Ellison, or Matthew Ellison, as he likes to be called, and he's going to share a little bit about what happened in Mexico and then bring the kids up. Give him a hand. Let me start off by saying that God did immeasurably more than I could have asked or imagined in Mexico City. And I think perhaps one of the most exciting things about the trip is that it was not put together by a bunch of adults. In fact, just the whole facilitation and organizing of the mission trip was done by Lifeliners. Um, they gave up their Saturdays and came in faithfully and made phone calls to um, other students who were going, helped them with fundraising, prayed for them. And for me, that was fruition of the vision I had for Lifeline, and that was it would be a place where the kids participated in the ministry, not just a place where they heard the word, but a place where they were allowed to practice it. And I think there's an unfortunate um, belief that seems to be floating through the church at large today, and that's that young people are the church of tomorrow. And unfortunately, if we tell them that enough, they're going to leave the church. But our young people are the church of today, and I've seen that totally happen um, right in front of my own eyes. And... Um, one of the things we did as we processed the trip, we did debriefing because we didn't want the mission trip to be an isolated incident in the lives of the kids, but we wanted the short-term trip to have a long-term impact in their lives and the lives of others. And so we helped them through the things they were experiencing, the things they were feeling, and we, we um, encouraged them to go to the Word of God and reflect on what God had to say about these people who didn't know Him. And what I saw just broke my heart as I saw the young people's hearts broken for the people of Mexico City. And it was truly incredible watching them do the work of the ministry. By about the uh, third day, the leaders could have just drifted into the wings and these young people would have hit Mexico City with all their heart. Um, it was really neat to see happen. But I've had enough to say it's better if you hear from them what God did in them and through them and how he changed them. So um, first of all, we have Cezanne, who was actually part of the internship and she faithfully was here helping the trip happen. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, well, when I heard about Mexico, I was really excited, but then there was the fact of the money, and that really intimidated me. So I decided to give up driver's ed, because most 16-year-olds want to get out there and get their license. So I decided to give that up and put that money towards Mexico. Well, God truly blessed me. He totally brought in all the money that I needed. And then we got to Mexico. And I guess one of the things that hit me the most was during the skit, there was a particular scene. It was the crucifixion scene. And just hearing the guy who played Jesus hit the ground so many times really broke my heart because I thought of how much Jesus Christ went through and all of the pain and suffering that he went through for us. And I don't think, I think a lot of us tend to ignore that fact and just like, oh yeah, he got crucified. And not really, we can't really imagine all the pain he went through. And that broke my heart. And as the days went on, I took that with me every day to every site as a booster. It helped me get up and go and think of, I'm doing all of this for the Lord. And in that way, he changed my life. I saw a whole bunch of things, and, and I realized how greedy I was 
and how selfish I was. And when I came back, I was just like, I wasn't looking forward to Christmas. I wasn't looking forward to opening up the Christmas gifts. It just wasn't, the Christmas gifts wasn't a part of me anymore. And that's how he changed my life. One thing that I learned in Mexico, I learned a lot of stuff, and uh, one thing I came back was more confidence in prayer. Um, the first time we did the drama was at night at church in a uh, or in a church at a rev- revival service, and uh, Matt had told us pick a face out of the crowd and pray for that person the whole drama. And so I was a mime, so I was kind of in a position the whole time, and uh, I'm looking out at the crowd, and I was like. I don't really want to pray for one person. I'll probably end up praying for like the pastor's wife or something, you know, somebody that's already a Christian. But so I was looking over the crowd and everything, and uh, I was I saw this one lady's face, and I almost felt like nudged physically, like pray for that lady. And so I did the whole drama. I prayed for that lady, and uh, at the end she was crying and she accepted the Lord. It was totally awesome. And so that's that's what I learned in Mexico City. God was so faithful and he answered so much prayer. It was really awesome. So one of the main things I learned um in Mexico was trust because when I found out about Mexico I didn't even want to go and I just was like, Well, I'll pray about it and um if the Lord wants me there, he'll have me there. And um with the deposit was due on the fifteenth and I on the sixteenth and I was like, Well, if the money's here by the 15th, I'll go. If not, you know, no big deal. So um, <laughs> the, I got home from school on the 15th, and there was um, some money in the mail for, like, the exact amount that I needed to go. And I was like, oh, man, I got to go now, you know. And <laughs> and, and I just, um, and when we got to Mexico, I totally realized that um, God had me there for a reason. And he just um, broke my heart. One of the main things that really touched me was the little kids. And, um these little kids have nothing out there. And I was talking to one of the little boys, and he shared with me that he lived on the street. And that um, that totally just um, broke my heart. And he did end up accepting Christ. And there was just, um, he had so much joy. And it really made me realize that everything I do have. And it, and it really made me content and um, more thankful for everything I do have. And so um, just to see the work God did through us, in us, and around us this trip just changed the way I think about things, my whole perspective. If there's um, any high school age kids out there in the audience, we do have Lifeline on Thursday night as well in the old mid-high room. And if you haven't been on an outreach before, I want to let you guys know that we're opening up a trip to the Philippines for high school age kids this summer. And so if you have an interest and um, you want to be used by God and changed by God, um, talk to me and I'll let you know what you need to know. Thanks a lot. Oh, another thing. Thank you guys. I know a lot of you are praying for us and supporting us financially. And it was great to see you guys rise to the challenge. Thank you very much. All right. Awesome. Mitch Madrid works up in uh, upstairs in a little uh, tiny quarters. He prefers that, but uh, he's a, a very organized guy. And uh, last year he worked with Operation Christmas Child when we undertook it as a church for the first time. 
And he loves to organize things. He loves projects. And so we sort of made him the project coordinator last year. And he went to Bosnia. And uh, they loved his ministering servant's heart so much, they called again and asked if he would come this year. In fact, I was with one of the people from Canada who was overseeing the project last year with Mitch, and they said, we'll take Mitch any time to come and uh, serve, because he really did have a servant's heart, uh, getting in and getting dirty and getting the things done and just doing whatever needed to get done. But uh, Mitch, again this year, went to Bosnia with the team. And so, Mitch, come on out and share with us what... Oh, there you are. You're right here. Mitch Madrid. Okay. Um, I shared last year about Bosnia, and uh, this year I thought when I went out there, things would be exactly the same. They'd be like, um, it's going to be the same trip. I'm used to everything. I'll be familiar. I'm a veteran this time, not a new guy that's coming on. And uh, when I got there, I was totally surprised. The uh, team grew last year. There was 15 of us. This year, there was like over 100 people on the team. The project had grew so much. And this was the first missions trip that I'd ever gone on where there were people who weren't saved because uh, we had a lot of uh, news people there from different areas of the world. There were Canadians there. There were people from England, uh, from America. And uh, there was a lot of newspapers there being represented, a lot of uh, television uh, stations and everything, magazines. And there was uh, there were a lot of unsaved people on the trip. And that was a neat experience, too, because... Uh, when you put people together on a missions trip, people don't even know each other from different walks of life, different ages, groups, social status. Everyone just is kind of like, it's kind of a crazy time sometimes. And then you mix the saved and the unsaved, and it gets really interesting. So, um, But it was a real interesting time where we could like uh, really share with those kind of people also. There were a couple of girls from Salt Lake City who... Uh, were from the Latter-day Saints Church that their project had got involved in the in the Christmas Child Operation Christmas Child also, and they came out and uh, it was just it was real interesting. <laughs> so we uh, stayed in Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia, and most everybody knows what's going on right now out there in Bosnia. Uh, basically, you have the old country of Yugoslavia, which is kind of broken up now, and uh, there's a country called Serbia, one called Croatia and another one called Bosnia i Herzegovina, which is right in the middle of the two. And the Serbs have been aggressors and have kind of been uh, at war with the uh, Croatians. And the uh, most in Croatia, there's mostly Croatians, Serbia, mostly Serbians. But in Bosnia, there's uh, Bosnians plus mixed marriages, Croatians and Serbs, and a lot of Muslims. So in the middle there, they're getting the, the full effect of the war there, and it's, it's really harsh there. The country there has just really been torn apart. So a lot of bitterness. I um, was speaking to a lot of the different people about what was going on out there and how they felt about it. I asked a lot of people who weren't saved. Some The people that were actually there are translators, different people we met, and just to see what uh, they felt about it. And the one general thing that they all really felt was there's just so much bitterness. And you see what's, and you, we go into these areas, you can see why. We went into, uh, we would take vans. We had 11 vans and four cars. And uh, we would take them into Bosnia each not, each day, uh, six to eight hour drives a day going in there. And when we got there, they designated everyone on, they broke the whole group of individual teams and then designated uh, uh, people in each team to do different things. And they designated me as a driver. And uh, those of you who know how I drive here in Albuquerque is God's grace is, is it's, it's out there. It's great. 
I'm pretty nervous as it is driving here, and uh, out there it seems like there are no rules. Everyone drives as fast as they want and anywhere they want, and uh, actually by the end of the time I was there, it was kind of neat. I was getting used to it a little bit, but, uh, and then with, there was fog. There was fog every single day, and we're talking thick fog where you couldn't even, I couldn't even see you sitting here in the front row, and that made it real interesting too, driving out there. Every time I got into a van, I prayed consistently every five minutes, and I was the one driving, so, but it was, it was something else. Uh, we'd go to these different cities in Bosnia, and we would set up the initial distribution of the shoeboxes. We went to refugee camps and schools and uh, just all over the different places where there were kids at that we could give these boxes to. And uh, it was uh, the conditions out there are really rough in some areas. We went to some places that had just gotten, um, the, they'd just been warring two months ago, and the buildings where they teach the kids in the school are basically just bombed out buildings. There's no doors, no windows, no heat, no electricity, no uh, facilities. There's uh, the water's coming into the roof everywhere. Um, the kids have to stay in school with their jacket on all day long. But they, they seem, the kids are just, they're just so, they bounce back so easy. And they, there was some, some really hard stories out there. A lot of the little babies that we would see in the refugee camps and in some of the areas were products of the Serbian rapes on the Croatian and Bosnian women. And uh, there were kids who had lots of stories about their parents being killed and just really seeing it and uh, having to deal with it. And it was kind of hard. That was really, it really touched my heart. It just really made me think, gosh, it's like they're, they're really going through some hard times out here. There was some, um, was this little boy in one of the, uh, they set up a concert. Dennis Akajanian played and Ricky Skaggs. And they set up this big concert in a city called Bihać. And Bihać is one of the cities you probably heard about in the news where they had surrounded it for a long time. People were in there starving. The uh, Muslims and the Croats, they fought back. They resisted, and the Serbians didn't make it into the city. But they surrounded them for, I think it was like a year and a half, and the people were starving in there. Um, people were uh, were dying, and no one could get to them, and they couldn't get to anyone else. Uh, one boy, his uh, parents were both doctors. He was explaining to me that uh, he was 16 at the time, but two years ago when they had surrounded Bihać, he was a soldier, and he had to kill, and he had to fight and protect his... Uh, protect his his home and uh, there was a lot of stories like that and there was another little boy there who was he's about this size and he was had the blue jacket on and his hat on and the minute I got out of one of the vans he just latched onto my side and just stood there with me and kind of we tried to communicate but he didn't speak very much English and I spoke no Croatian and uh, he just stood with me the whole I think I was there three hours and he was by me the whole time just wanting to hang out with me and when it came to distribu- distributing the boxes there was close to, I would say, 5,000 kids there. So um, what I did was I snuck around to the back and uh, went back there and found the biggest box I could find, and I brought it out to him. And he sat there, and the kids, you'd hand him these boxes, and they wouldn't even know what to do with them a lot of times because they've never, they, haven't, they haven't gotten anything. They would just stand there with their box until you would like actually show them that they could open it, and that what was inside there was theirs. And uh, this little boy just sat there, and he opened it, and he just took everything out real gently and placed it to the side. And he just looked at me, and he, he said, Vala, which in Croatia means thank you. And then he just rushed off to go show his friends what he got. And it was, uh, it was just, I mean, it was a total blessing to be able to share with the kids out there. I love hanging out with kids. There was another group of kids where, um, in another school 
where I sat and talked with them and uh, they just kind of, they kept calling me friend, friend and uh, they hung out with me for like about three hours when we were distributing the boxes in this one area. So after about the first hour, I put all them to work and I put them there, lined them up and let them hand the boxes out to, the, to their friends, to their kids and that was the biggest thrill to them and they just loved that. And um, there was just, uh, it was just a, a neat time where you can, uh, if you can only imagine the uh, the kids out there their faces, they would see these boxes and the stuff that was in there. And um, it was just, it really, you can't like leave there and not be changed, not come away and think, gosh, we have it so good here. I mean, things that are, that we take for granted here every single day, they don't even have, which is just base, your basics, heat and electricity. There was another group of kids that I hung out with, and we sat there and we started exchanging scars. Showing, I'd show them my rollerblade wounds, and they would show me their mortar shell wounds. And it was, <laughs> it was, but they were, they were real. Uh, they would joke about it, and they would kind of laugh about it a little bit, which showed me that they, uh, they're, they're bouncing back, and things are coming back over there. There were some areas that hadn't fought for a while, a couple years. Um, they're, uh, those places are starting to get rebuilt. They're, the, the schools are getting a little better again. And uh, conditions are getting better in some areas. But some of the areas are just really, like I say, in just real bad conditions still. Uh, now that the supposed peace treaty is signed, hopefully it looks good. It really does. I'm glad the U.S. is out there. And uh, there, uh, there was, the place was, t- there was tons of U.N. and military people all over the place. And you're seeing it in the news now. And this time is during the winter time when both sides pull back. So uh, it's giving the peace, uh, the peace process a chance, and hopefully when spring comes around, that's when we're really going to see some change, and it's going to be really different. So it's going to have to be a, a time where uh, uh, they're going to, this country's really going to need our prayers and really need our uh, our support as far as just praying for these people and asking God to really intervene and use the Americans and use the, uh, the other countries that are going to the English to help this country out. Um, when you come back from a country like that, I mean, I got back to Albuquerque finally, and uh, my luggage was lost. And it was like, something like that can be like such a drag. But I had this attitude that, I mean, it's just no big deal. If it comes, it comes. If it shows up, it doesn't. I had Christmas presents in there, gifts from the kids had given me, stuff I could never replace. But not only did I not, was not bummed about it not being there, I didn't feel bummed about it in my heart either. And it just really showed me that God is just really doing some neat things in my own life and giving me the, give, by going out there and having the opportunity to serve out there. Um, again, just really pray for this area of the world. Um, I know that because I went there, it's, it's the burden is heavier on my heart and deeper, but, um, I think we're going to show a video tonight. And once you see that video, it's from last year's, uh, Operation Christmas Child when we went out there last year. And, uh, you'll get a better idea of exactly what it's like and, after you see the video, you'll really understand what I'm talking about. And uh, I also want to just say thanks to everyone who just contributed boxes, all the school ministry people who, uh, I'm, the, I'm the lucky one who got to go be blessed and go help them out over there. But, I mean, there's so many people from this church who just contributed big time. People manning the tables, uh, lifting the boxes, loading them, packing them. Sunday morning, you saw them boxes out here. Each one had to be packed up and numbered in a box, loaded into a roadway. And uh, it was just it was just the whole project from seeing it from finish to end is just the greatest thing. It really is. And that's all. One of the pastors that went on this trip 
was in a school with Dennis Agajanian. He was singing and uh, the guy was preaching and the school teacher said their church had just been bombed and destroyed. And she said, our church has been destroyed, but God has come to us. And so the impact that it made in that school and in that teacher's life was profound. Um, now this year, they, when Franklin said on Sunday morning that I was going to Iraq, and I said, sure, I'll go, and he announced that I was going, the people that work with him called me up and said, look, Franklin doesn't understand the implications of this right now. We've just gotten word. You can't go to Iraq. That option is closed. Uh, we're not going to be sending packages. They won't allow them in. And so they called me on the phone. And they said, do you want to go to, uh, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Jordan and represent us in Jordan? Or do you want to go to Bosnia? And I said, how many people are going to Bosnia? And he said, oh, about 80 people. I said, well, you really don't need me in Bosnia. You've got enough spokesmen and representatives in different parts. And he said, uh, yeah, but it's so well organized in Jordan. You probably have more fun with us in Bosnia. So I said, okay, sign me up for Bosnia. And I thought about it a day, called him back up, and I said, no, you know, I think I should be going to the Middle East because this is a first-time project to the Middle East. I've been to Rwanda last year. You've got so many people going to Bosnia. We'd be running over ourselves. Why don't you send myself, my wife Lenya, and my son Nathan, who wanted to come along, and we thought it'd be good, to the Middle East. And so they said, well, have it your way, but it'll only be Jordan. I said, well, that's good enough. I think it's a smaller contingent and we'd be uh, better serving your needs as well as the peoples in that part of the world. Well, on the way to the airport, Franklin Graham calls me from his office and he said, just got word from the border, you're going to make it in to Iraq. I said, great. He said, well, fax me your passport number and we'll try to get you a visa. And uh, if you still want to go, I said, oh, absolutely, I'll go. So... Um, we flew over in one of these big Antonovs, and just so you know, the quantity of packages, once again, last year we collected 110,000 between England and America and Canada. This year, we collected 800,000, and they were still coming in when we were sending planes out. So... Five aircrafts took off from the airport in Stansted, England, one after another. Three of them went to Bosnia, one went to Rwanda, one went to the Middle East. We were going to take 32,000 of those packages in that Antonov to Iraq. Then others this week are going from Alaska over into the Soviet Union to be passed out, and then others are still being crated by sea to different parts of the world. So it's a big project. Well, we landed in Jordan, and that night I went to Iraq, and my wife and my son had ex some great experiences with the children in Jordan. And so I'm going to have my wife come and share what happened in Jordan. I'm supposed to share for Nathan tonight, too. He was too nervous to come up here. but um, So I'll get to a Nathan part and give you some little anecdotes of his life in Jordan as well. Um, when we landed in Jordan, we were greeted by um, a princess. They call a Sharifa there, which means Her Majesty. She is the daughter of King Hussein's brother. So the king's her uncle. And uh, she has been 
um, influenced by two missionaries that uh, Samaritan's Purse supports over in Jordan. And these two women moved to Jordan in their 30s. They're now in their 70s and have given 40 of their years to that country. They've learned the language. As a matter of fact, they are more fluent in the Bedouin dialect than most Arabic people who are there. And these two dynamic ladies have really influenced the princess. And had it not been for that um, door in the princess's life, I don't think some of the things could have happened in Jordan. Um, Our culture in the United States, we always say, don't put off for tomorrow what you can do today. But in that culture, it's don't do today what you could put off for till tomorrow. So time has absolutely no meaning or reference there. So um, as we were informed later, um, everything we did should have taken days. And it was miraculous because of the Sharifa Zain's influence that we got to do the things we did. As soon as the plane landed, um, we were waived all of the tariffs and taxes. I was told if a spoon cost $2, the tariff and taxes could be $4. And so because of the Sharifa, there were no tariffs or taxes charged on a whole huge plane load of these gifts. Also, um, she made sure that everything got through customs in one day and that they were loaded into trucks and put into storage facilities for Jordan and then put on trucks to head to Iraq. Had it not been for that, I think we could still be at the airport in Jordan trying to get these things. Some guy with the rubber stamp would be sitting there telling us why we couldn't have the stamp. So um, she traveled with our group the entire time we were there. She is a Muslim. As a matter of fact, Skip informed me she is a direct descendant of Muhammad. But because she has been so influenced by these missionaries, her life is very, very open. And she has an incredible heart for the poor and for the people. And if you remember her, uh, Sharifa Zain, please pray for her because God obviously, she won't live in the palace because she doesn't want to associate with the rich and the upper class. She lives in Bedouin clothes. Her whole heart is for these people and she travels to them. The two missionaries that do the work there wanted to open a second clinic in the south. They have one in the north. And the government said, no, those women preached to everybody. And she went on their behalf to um, intercede and told them, look, if you can find a Muslim doctor and a Muslim nurse and a Muslim janitor handyman who is willing to go live in the middle of nowhere, up in those mountains, on their salary, eating those food, then you send the Muslim ones. But until you can find someone to do that, let these Christian women have their clinic. And they got their clinic. So... Um, It was a blessing just to be with her. She also brought a team of college-age students with her, probably 15 to 20 of them. They have a group of college students that they call the Golden Prince Award students. They have to have a certain GPA, and they have to be involved civically and athletically, and so they're the cream of the crop college students. And we had a team of three Canadians, two Brits, and four Americans. And we would caravan in about eight cars and a couple of great big huge trucks for the packages. But what was wonderful is there were two or three of us with all these Muslim college-age students. So a lot of the witnessing for us happened in the cars because as we would minister with the Sharifa, it wasn't so evangelistic that we could really preach the gospel handing out the gifts. But we got to share the gospel with these college students. Um, One 
one gal, she was a beautiful Muslim girl, her name was Maha, she took a liking to Nathan, and I think Nathan had a crush on Maha, he'd kill me for telling you, but I mean, Maha was his best friend in the world by the time we left, and um she would just take him everywhere and he would open the presents with the kids and show them how to play with it. And she'd always tell me, oh, he's so bright, he's so wonderful. Look how brilliant he is because he would help these kids and the children would want to talk to him. And um, in this culture, it's different from us. Um, men are everything there. It's a patriarchal culture. And women might be slightly above a dog. I don't know. <laughs> so, ladies, um, I'd like to take some women livers over there and let them really see, you know. Uh, it's just unbelievable. When the children would get in line, the men would get in line first. And generally, the young gals would stay very much on the peripheral, near the fences and far away. And... They'd hide their heads and their faces, and Nathan or I would go over and say, did you get a present? And they'd say, my brother got a present. And we'd say, no, you, you can have a present too. There are gifts here for you as well. But it's a culture that doesn't do that. So a lot of times the girls wouldn't even come, wouldn't get in line. We'd have to seek out the females ourselves. And so um, Nathan had seen these two gals that didn't get a present, and he said to Maha, they didn't get a present. And our boxes were gone from the told Maha, I have some toys in the car. I'll give him my toys. So he went to give him his toys, but they were girls and he had Batman characters. And, you know, that would be like sacrilege. You can't give characters to girls. So then he tried to give him some money, but we were in the middle of nowhere. Um, we had the privilege because the Sharifa has canvassed the country to find where all the poor people and where the really needy people were. We drove from Amman through nowhere, through deserts, through wilderness, through more nowhere. They call the Dead Sea because it's the Dead Sea and it's in the middle of nowhere. And we drove past the Dead Sea. So just imagine driving past nowhere until we turned left into nowhere else, until it turned into dirt roads of nowhere that turned into four-wheel drive nowhere places because we were in four-wheel drives. It took four hours of nowhere, rocks and sand and deserts and no vegetation until we got to the middle of this Bedouin village. And it was like going back to the Old Testament. I felt like we opened the door and I'd been in a time machine and I was at Abraham and Isaac's tent. They still live in those old goatskin tents and the women still weave the tapestries that are really dark, rich colors on the inside. And the men are sitting out drinking coffee and the women are baling the hay and feeding the sheep. And <laughs> the, the guys have it made there. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're unemployed I know, <laughs> and you're male, <laughs> you might want to think about Jordan. <laughs> but... Um, so we got in the middle of nowhere, and um, we're giving presents to these kids, and I was in the car with the missionary that was there, so she was explaining the culture to me as we went. And she said, Lenya, not only will these kids be shocked to get presents, they've never had a Christmas present, and more than likely they've never had a present in their entire life. These kids are in abject poverty, and they live in just threadbare clothes. So when we pulled up, it was the same as Mitchell described. They had no concept. I mean, they were truly excited, but almost stunned. 
You know, and the same thing, you had to open the box for them and show them, and they were just overwhelmed. A lot of people have put stuffed animals, and so the little ones, you try and open it up, and you, every single kid I gave a stuffed animal to would burst into tears. And I kept wondering, they were afraid of them. They had never seen a stuffed animal. To them, that was something that was just overwhelming. One little boy, when the missionary um, was talking to them, he came up and yanked her leg and said to her in Arabic, he held up a pencil about the size of one of your joints of your finger, and he said, in my box I got 14 pencils. This is what I've been writing with. He said, do I have to give them back? And she said, no, honey, you use those pencils one at a time. And things like that just overwhelm you, a pencil. Another school we went to really far north, it was freezing. Everything we did was late, and I guess that's just the way things work there. But we got to the school three hours late, and these kids had been sitting in a freezing cement square bedroom, shivering in the cold, waiting for us, barefoot. And we pulled up, and it was just, I mean, they were opening these presents and joyful, and two little boys were watching their buddy open a box. And, you know, sometimes you can get flashlights, like three or four in a package, those kind of square-shaped ones. Well, this boy had gotten a package of four flashlights, and his two buddies were watching, and he pulled up the package of four flashlights, and his two friends fell over backwards. <laughs> like, four flashlights! I mean, they just they couldn't believe these things. Um, a Christian from Canada came with us, and he owns a clothing factory in Canada. So he brought all the past season clothing for children. And so we'd hand out clothes. And in this Bedouin uh, tribe that we went to, they were handing clothes to the gals. And um, I was just curious. I stuck real close to this missionary so I could hear everything that the kids say. And this one girl kept pushing things back. And I said, is it unacceptable? Is it not you know, high enough collars and not long enough, wrong color, well, you know, what is it? And she said she had gotten a dress and they tried to give her something else and she told them, no, it's too much, I have enough. And I thought, what American kid would go to Kmart or whatever and say, no, Mom, don't buy me another shirt, <laughs> too much, you know. <laughs> really, one's enough. But um, so these kids, you know, it's just overwhelming to them. So um, Nathan tried to give his money and toys to these one kids, and Maha had observed him. In the Syrian, we were up by the Syrian border, and it was cold where I told you the school, and one of the kids was shivering barefoot, and Nathan tried to take off his coat and give it to the little kid. And Maha would come to me at night and say, your son is so pure, he's so innocent. You know, I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, just being able to have the gospel lived through your son was wonderful. And as we left... She uh, said to me that she felt as though the whole trip had washed her heart and that she had been cleaned inside. And she didn't know how to express what she was feeling. But um, I think because of the Americans' um, conflict in the Gulf War and Jordan being you know, somewhere in the midst of that, that I think they were suspicious of us. And likewise, I was suspicious of them. You know, we've gone to Israel so often. I didn't know what it would be like to be in a Muslim country. And the exchange between 
the teams of the Muslims and the Christians that were there, it just broke down walls in all of us. And uh, we were friends. They all took Nathan's address. I think bringing a firstborn son to this country was a good thing. <laughs> Therefore, I was acceptable. Otherwise, you know, they might not even talk to me. <laughs> there was one little boy as we were going through the lines and shaking hands. He got to the women, and he was four, five, a wee little boy. And he said, I don't shake women's hands. I mean, just like that. And so uh, I have a sense of humor. (laughs) And I said to the missionary, I said, would you tell that little boy we don't give presents to little boys, we just give them to little girls? (laughs) So the little boy kind of looked shocked, like this had never happened to him in his life. And about ten minutes later, he came over and shook my hand. But um, so we had a lot of fun. We um, had the privilege of shaking the hands with the sheiks of this village that we were in. And we had, um, they killed the fatted calf in essence for us, just like the prodigal son. And we laid down on pillows and rugs inside this Bedouin tent with a pit in the middle and fires burning. And they carry in, I mean, a sheep with the jaws and the eyeballs and everything. And they gave me the tongue, thinking that was (laughs) a really big favor. (laughs) And I kind of just slapped it over on the missionary's plate and told her, I said, you lived here 40 years, you eat it. (laughs) But um, it was really quite an experience. I wish I could tell you everything that happened. Um, And it was the same as Matt said. It was exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask and hope. The only last interesting thing is there is a Christian contingency. There are Christians in Jordan, which shocked me. There was a Christmas tree in the Marriott Hotel we stayed in. The kids came in and they taught them in English Christmas carols. They were singing, Oh, come all ye faithful in little town of Bethlehem. And they're little Muslim kids. But um, they took us to a couple of Christian orphanages. And at those orphanages, they were able to preach the gospel to these kids. A wonderful uh, Muslim, uh, not Muslim, Arabic woman came and opened a, a thing and told them a wonderful story and explained about Jesus and asked them if they wanted to receive the Lord. And two-thirds of about 300 kids just stood up to their feet and said that they wanted to. So um, God was really good. Thank you for the privilege of being sent and for supporting us. I was reading uh, the uh, State Department's travel information off the Internet yesterday, and I hadn't read this before my trip, but it says, Iraq travel warning. The Department of State warns all U.S. citizens against traveling to Iraq. Conditions within the country remain unsettled and dangerous. The United States does not maintain diplomatic relations with Iraq and cannot provide normal consular protective services to U.S. citizens. U.S. passports are not valid for travel to, in, or through Iraq unless they are specially endorsed by the U.S. government. Travel in Iraq is extremely hazardous, particularly for U.S. citizens. In 1992 and 93, a number of U.S. citizens and other foreigners working near the Kuwait-Iraq border were detained by Iraqi authorities for lengthy periods under harsh conditions. Tension in the Persian Gulf region remains high because of continuing Iraqi defiance of U.N. Security Council resolutions. As a result, 
The risk of terrorism directed against U.S. citizens in Iraq remains a continuing concern. There is no U.S. embassy in Iraq. The U.S. government is not in a position to accord normal consular protective services to U.S. citizens who, despite this warning, are in Iraq. Now, I read this yesterday, and uh, not having had the privilege, it's a good thing I didn't read it before I went. But... um, it was a risky mission. I really didn't know how it would go. We didn't know if we'd get across the border. After all, six trucks filled with presents, two trucks filled with medicine. Would the UN stop us? Would they even let us in to their country? What would it be like? Uh, we wanted to open a door, and folks, those gifts opened the door. The people at the embassy in Jordan, who are Iraqis, were so overwhelmed that we included them, that they just sort of expedited everything through. And they, you know, gave us the go-ahead. Hey, go for it. And so we did. Again, they said, now, we don't know what will happen at the border once you're in Baghdad. But, you know, as far as they could, they got everything situated. Uh, when we got to Baghdad, 23 and a half hours later by car, one way, um, we stayed at the Al-Rashid Hotel. Ring any bells? That's the hotel that CNN filmed everything from. And it was the 10th floor that they all stayed in. And guess what floor I stayed on? The 10th floor. So it brought back memories as I opened the windows and saw that view without any lights in the sky. Brought back a lot of memories. And I do want to say uh, something right off the bat. Um, I do support our government's action in the Gulf War. And I do support our troops going over there. That's a whole different issue here. Now that that has happened, there are still people, needy people. It's a broken people. Uh, I have in my Bible a hundred dinar, Iraqi dinar with Saddam's picture on the other side. That was, you know, I don't know, worth uh, quite a bit of money uh, before the war. A stack like this, would be worth about a buck right now. And so the average person there that made maybe thousands of dollars before makes an average now of about $2 a month U.S. That's what they make now. It's very, very difficult conditions. And so we see it as an opportunity to reach broken people by reaching out to their children, hoping that will open a door to spreading the gospel. And I shared some of it on Sunday, so I don't want to go over it too much, but we did meet with three members of Saddam Hussein's cabinet. And we were able to share with them that Jesus Christ sent us. We're not sent by the UN. We don't represent the government of Canada or England or the United States, but that God loves them. And we love them for His sake. And that we brought them to put a smile on the face of the children and to bring medicine to help restore the country. And the man said, we've always thought that it's Christians who are against us, but now we realize that it's the Christians who love us. And that was the door we wanted open, that some of the government would recognize Christians love us. And we know that Jesus loves all people, not just Americans. Not just people who live in certain parts of the world who hold a certain belief system. He died for the world. 
And they need to know it. And it was a thrill to meet with them. It was a thrill to share the gospel and represent the Lord. It was a thrill to preach in that church in Baghdad and see 20% of the audience respond to the gospel and give their lives to Jesus Christ. As we mentioned Sunday, it was thrilling. Now, we want to show you some of the faces of children. Now, this isn't from the recent trip. We haven't compiled all the video yet. When we do, we'll show that to you. But we want to show you some faces of children in Bosnia and in Africa who receive these gifts. So, let's kill the lights. Roll them. Looking at the time, I don't have time to uh, share the message I was going to share, but there's some thoughts that come to me, and I want to bring those to you as we close. This was your project, and you got involved, and we saw the thrill. As I talked to some of you bringing the boxes in, and how your kids packaged them, and how they prayed for the children that they'd be going to, that they go to the right kids. And we trust the, the Lord, and we still do for each of those boxes. Who knows the impact in the future of opening a door of love to kids around the world where maybe the thing that they'll remember is that, yeah, there was these people who came from the other side of the world in the name of Jesus Christ and put a smile on our faces by giving us this present. And some of them who might say, I read this little pamphlet this little coloring book, and I received Jesus Christ years ago in an orphanage. And what that could mean to that country. One of the highlights of my trip is we were waiting for the packages to clear customs, for the rest of the trucks to get into Baghdad. And it's an odd feeling being in that part of the world, being a minority, not only uh, in nationality, but spiritually, One of the highlights is one afternoon we went down to the ancient ruins of Babylon and saw the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, the throne room of Nebuchadnezzar, the room of Belshazzar where all of the lords gathered and they had a huge feast. And we remembered how that a young boy about 15 years old named Daniel, came from Jerusalem, outnumbered, who stood alone, who stood alone before a king, and then another king, and then another king, and really a whole nation, who stood up and gave a witness for his God. He didn't have a church, didn't have a kinship group, didn't have a youth group, didn't have anything, but trusted his God and made a commitment not to defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. And that commitment lasted him from being a child up until he was in his 80s, again giving a testimony before the kings of Babylon. And how possible it is to make an impact on a culture, even when you're a minority. You've made an impact on a culture. You are a minority in this world. You are reaching out all over the world, and who knows what will happen to these children who've accepted Christ, who've been touched as they decide, I'm going to follow this Jesus in this culture. God can do great things through this. And I would just encourage that our lives be seen as His instruments, that outreach becomes something that is just a natural part of our lives, that sharing the gospel and sharing Christ's love isn't something we just keep in a box reserved for once a year. 
But sometime as you leave this facility that you would leave outside the back doors and look at the inscription on the courtyard wall where the words of Jesus are inscribed, he said, Go into all the world. And he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The world needs to hear. The world is longing to hear a message of love and forgiveness. And when we reach out in any way, it can make a tremendous impact. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given to us to share in a project that so many hundreds of thousands of people have prayed for, contributed to, children have become involved, And Lord, we believe that you are going to use this not only during this week, but in months, in years ahead to sprinkle the sweetness of your character in the cultures of these countries, in the lives of these children and these adults, some the poorest of the poor, others princesses, cabinet members, kings and queens, that they all might know there is a God in heaven who rules in the kingdom of men. A God in heaven. And these gifts represent the greatest gift ever given to the earth. God wrapped in human skin in the form of Jesus Christ to die for the transgressions and the iniquities of all of us. Lord, I pray that that message gets across ever so clear through our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.